On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with me, Scott Radley, sitting in today, we're talking about diet fads and diet challenges and whether there's science behind it. And if there's not, why are we so willing and eager to believe them? We're also going to talk about something Elon Musk and his company are working on that would see a chip, a computer chip implanted in your brain. Some people are going to think this is the coolest thing ever. Others are going to be totally freaked out by this. And you will not believe how much Queen, the band Queen, is making every single day on royalties from Bohemian Rhapsody. And what old technology they've decided to revive and resuscitate because they're Queen, they can do it. What is that technology? Stick around and find out. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. You probably are aware because you probably are online. You probably have a connection to the internet or social media somewhere. You are probably aware that the internet is constantly coming up with various challenges, often various eating challenges. Remember the Tide Pod Challenge? Uh, the Spoonful of Cinnamon Challenge? I mean, those ones are ridiculous, but there's others. And many of them are not necessarily supposed to be ridiculous. They're supposed to be healthy, including this new one, the hydration challenge, which I suppose isn't really new. It's just got new branding around it. Um, Over the years, there's been various versions of this one. Uh, Never have your cup empty. Always have a full cup of water. As soon as you drink it, fill it up again. Um, you know, other ones, eight glasses of water a day, a gallon of water a day, two quarts of water, enough till your pee is clear on and on and on. There's just, there's a million different ones. The difference between a lot of the goofy ones, or at least the ones I think that most reasonable people would identify as goofy. And this one is that this seems to, to a lot of people make sense. They say, well, yeah, of course we should drink endless amounts of water. Why wouldn't we? Our body is made of 90% water or whatever. So of course we should be drinking water nonstop, but is there really any true science behind this? Dr. Tim Caulfield is a Canada research chair in health law and policy. He's a professor with the faculty of law and the school of public health at the university of Alberta. And most importantly, the author of many books, including is Gwyneth Paltrow wrong about everything when celebrity culture and science clash. We love when Dr. Caulfield has some time to join us. He does today. Doctor, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me on. Every time I've gotten to the point now where every time I hear about one of these new challengers or suggestions or whatever else, my first question is, is there a book out there that someone is selling? (laughs) Because this, this seems to be the driving force behind a lot of these. It's, it's incredible. This, this myth will not die. (laughs) Water one, it's been, and I've been following it uh, very closely. I'm going to say for 15 years and, and it just does not abate at all there's this part of it i think it's it's intuitively appealing you know we do need water there's no doubt about it uh but also there's a lot of there's a lot of marketing behind it you know the bottled water is a multi-billion dollar industry um and 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 it gives the wellness gurus something something to pitch i think that that's also uh what's going on The the other thing it really leverages is this idea which a lot happens a lot in the wellness industry is the idea that if a little bit of something is good for you, then then lots, <laughs> you know, then lots is is better. You see that with wellness. I mean, with with vitamins and supplements. But that, of course, isn't how the body body works. So there really is absolutely no evidence to support support this trend. 
thankfully that I've heard of so far, there's no kale or tofu challenge. Not yet. So I, I, we're, we're still safe. If it's just water, then I suppose. But where did this come from? Where did, where do we know where the origin of this, you know, drink water nonstop until your pee is completely clear because that's the sign of good health. Where did that start from? Well, it's a great it's a great question, and I've tried I've tried to trace it back uh, for various projects, and and it seems like it seems like it started because of a misinterpretation of a 1945 U.S. Food and Nutrition Board recommendation that kind of mapped out the how much water humans need, um, and it, it roughly translated into eight classes of water a day. But what's often forgotten is that. That includes all the fluids that we take in, right? Uh, whether it's, you know, you eat an apple, you know, there's fluids in almost all the foods that we eat. Um, it includes coffee. It includes, you know, whatever, how, whatever kind of fluid you take into your body. But, but that was even, you know, not really this strongly evidence-based, uh, you know, study. It was just sort of looking at the literature and making this recommendation. But for whatever reason, that has taken off. And this idea of eight glasses of water a day has become very, 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 very sticky. The reality is you drink when you're thirsty. <laughs> That's it. Look, if, if you have some kind of absorption problem and some kind of medical need to drink more often, or if it's incredibly hot outside, you want to be aware of how much water you're drinking. But it's sort of as a general rule in life, you, you know, you drink when you're thirsty, you know, thanks evolution. And that's, that's all you need to do. You point out that this comes from a 1945 study, which perked up my ears immediately. Cause I'm trying to think how many things health wise from 1945 would people cling to today? I mean, back then, I think four to five doctors were still rep- recommending camel cigarettes as the best ones to smoke. I mean, I, so I'm not sure how many things from 1945 we would be hanging on to saying, well, see, the research shows. Uh, you're right. And, and the funny thing is, it, it, in my recollection, is, and I haven't looked at that document for a while, is it wasn't really an evidence-based recommendation. They were just kind of mapping out, you know, this is how much, how much fluids hu- humans, humans need. But uh, as I said, it kind of pl- uh, plays to our, you know, this intuitive idea that, you know, the more water is good. And you've seen this. They say that it, it, it will help your skin. No evidence it'll do that. Yep. But, that it'll help you, uh, you know, have all these other Flush kinds of a- amorphous benefits, you know, that really no evidence to support it. Yes. Flushing toxins is one of the favorites. I don't know what that means. I, I when you, now, I mean, look, I, I'm not making fun of this totally because, but I assume that flushing toxins means again, going pee. That's how you flush your toxins quite literally. And that water helps you, I suppose. But, but this has, doctor, this has seemingly, innumerable disciples behind this one. For whatever reason, this has caught on as absolute truth for millions of people. It, it has. And, and you, hear, you hear wellness gurus, as I often as I like to call them, you know, push it all the time. And I think it's, it's because it gives them something tangible to recommend, right? Um, and, uh, and it's something that they can point to, uh, for example, this document to, to support their, their recommendation. The other thing is that humans do need water, right? We, it's not like we don't, we don't need water. But, but the other thing is, it, I, I think it's, it's very distracting because it, because it causes people to think that they have to drink a certain amount of water and have a certain kind of water. You know, you don't need alkaline water. You don't need oxygenate, oxygenated water. You don't need GMO-free water. That's actually a thing. You know, you don't need gluten-free water. That's actually a thing. Um, so it allows them, you know, to market products, 
right? And, uh, you know, to be honest with you, there's actually been studies that have shown that for most people, tap water is absolutely fine. And by most people, I mean, you know, there are, of course, jurisdictions where getting clean water incredibly important, right? But in most places, tap water is absolutely safe. And, and, and it tastes better. <laughs> They've actually done blind mm. taste tests with tap water and bottled water, and many people either can't tell the difference or often pick the tap water. So, you know, there's so many problems with this myth, um, and you can ignore it at all. You just said something else that I love, and I, I've thought about this for a long time. I always hear, or we've always heard about the oxygenated water you can buy, and I thought, wait a second, I thought, I, I didn't do all that well in chemistry in high school, but I thought the chemical makeup of water was H2O, you can't add much more or else it stops being water. But I just, maybe I'm misunderstanding. Uh, you're right. I, mean, I wrote on this and I kind of joked about that too. You know, they're cramming in more oxygen <laughs> into this and somehow it's going to make, you know, we're not fish either. I'm not sure how that's going to be beneficial to have gills in our stomach that would allow you to absorb it better. It, it, there's all of these, these myths. And, I, and, and that's really interesting because it plays on something else that's very common uh, in the wellness community. Is it's I call it science exploitation, right? You know, injecting sciencey words and sciencey concepts that are really meaningless, but they they give the idea more credibility. So we've got this one, but it's not just. I mean, this is this is a, a persistent one, but it seems every month or so there is some new challenge or fad or suggestion that comes along that people want to latch onto. I mean, whether we were joking at the start about the carnivore diet or the paleo diet or the vegan diet or and like i'm not saying none of those have any kind of um health benefits but they they sort of it goes crazy for a while um even you know to the point where it's not eating but we get you've written about gwyneth paltrow with gwyneth paltrow and taking jade eggs to put in for women in their you know areas um and, and there's and people who are normally intelligent and discerning seem to be willing to abandon that in critical thinking and just say, sure, I'm going to put a stone there. It's, it's so true. Uh, and, and I think what happens with a lot of these challenges is it, it plays to the way that social media works. And this is actually an area that we've, we're doing a, a lot of research. You know, social media is about um, uh, it, it, it create this frenetic space, right? It's not about inviting reflection, right? <laughs> on the contrary. Uh, and that's exactly what these challenges do. And, and you know, they're fun, they're, they're straightforward, and, and, they, and it works well on the social media platform. None of that makes it right. None of that makes it science-based, science right? It doesn't really invite reflection about re- what's going on. And I also think it's problematic because it distracts us from those basic things that we can do to live a healthy lifestyle, right? And they're very straightforward. Uh, but this just creates, you know, wellness noise, which evidence tells us, can can be distra- distracting and ultimately uh, not beneficial. And it's it seems so often, and, and tell me if I'm wrong on this one, but it seems so often that it is celebrity driven. I mean, look, if I walk up to you, if you particularly if you were a woman, let's say, but I walk up to you on the street, and again, using the example of Gwyneth Paltrow, and I say, here, I've got a great idea to benefit your health. Take a stone and put it in your intimate area, and that's going to really do great things. People would think I was literally insane. They would they would call me out and say, "What?" they'd probably call for help for me because they would think I was so out of it. And yet people buy these by the thousands and say, well, if Gwyneth Paltrow says it works, it must work. And that, and that stone, <laughs> that stone actually sold out. Uh, quick, quick aside, I actually gave, I gave a talk at the Mayo Clinic, and they actually gave me that as my speaker's present, that stone. So I <laughs> that was quite touching. 
<laughs> um, I can actually see it in my office right now. Uh, I don't know where to put it on my body. But, <laughs> but you're right about that. You know, celebrities, uh, celebrities have a huge impact on us, even if we don't think that they are credible sources of information. If, you, if, if we ask people, is Gwyneth Paltrow a credible source of information? Most people say no. But despite that, because she has a brand that appeals to us, because she is a, uh, you know, a, a powerful anecdote, they can still have sway over our decisions. And there's evidence to back that up. And others, I mean, look, that, that one is, it, it's, uh, I think it's silly, but some people may swear by it. I don't know, but there's other things that are way more serious. And I, I'm trying to remember the name of the person, but there was another celebrity, I think at one time who was on TV and said, um, uh, inoculations for babies cause autism. If I recall what the connection was there. Yeah, Jenny McCarthy. Jenny McCarthy. And, and it, like, it just seems like, well, that's the power of fame, that as long as you've got a platform, somebody is going to listen to you because you're either famous or good-looking or whatever else. That that seems like a remarkable power that fame provides, that they can give you medical advice that people will believe. The Jenny McCarthy example is is a really powerful one, because you're exactly right. You know, um, not an expert, but she goes on. She was the, the most, her most famous presentation was on the Larry King show, and she's on there, and she's talking about how her child got autism, not true, not true, from, from vaccines. But there, this powerful narrative that she's giving, she's a, a mom talking about her experience, and that can overwhelm the scientific evidence. You know, she was on that panel with, I think, three Ph.D. experts in in vaccines, and, and we remember her, right, because she's a celebrity and she's a mom telling a story. But there's a lot of other examples. Tom Brady is a very, you know, one of my favorite athletes, greatest quarterback of all time. He sells, you know, all these supplement bunks. He sells all these, the, these stupid uh, the TB, diets. The TB12 method. Yeah, exactly right, exactly right. And it's because he's this anecdote, this powerful anecdote, um, that uh, it, it becomes persuasive, and, and we know it does. And then there's other examples, like the Jolie effect. Angelina Jolie uh, gets a mastectomy, gets genetic testing, and as a result of two op-eds in the New York Times, both the, those the popularity of both those procedures goes up, for better or worse. I mean, that's a complex issue, very complex issue, but it really, again, emphasizes the power celebrity culture can have over health decisions, even when we don't know that's happening. So if, if celebrity has that much power to affect people's thinking about medical issues, truly, why has the mainstream medical community not done a much better job at getting celebrities to pitch and sell and tell people about its real medical things that could help people? It seems like if you, why not fight fire with fire and have George Clooney or someone come out and, and do the stuff for the real stuff? It seems like a missed opportunity. Well, well, the good news is that I think, and, and partly because of of the pandemic, and partly because of the misinformation that's flowed from from uh, you know during during this crisis, we are seeing public health officials, clinicians, scientists, researchers trying to leverage social media to get across the good stuff. You know, using the tools that celebrities use. You know, so TikTok, humor, stories, art to get across the good stuff. So I, I, I think that we are seeing a constructive trend where we're trying to think of creative ways to do science communication better. So that's the good news. Um, you know, I, I do think uh, that using celebrities to push, to push um, public health or our health messages can be complex, and there's actually been some interesting studies on this. Um, you want to make sure the message is clear, that it's not, you know, 
ambiguous at all. You know, wear your seatbelt, you know, eat healthy, exercise, don't smoke. You know, those kind of message, messages, I think celebrities can play a role. And I think we're going to see more of that in the future. What is, I should ask you, because you've studied this, what is the weirdest health thing that a celebrity has encouraged people to do or not to do, as far as you can remember? Oh my gosh, it's too many. <laughs> on the spot here. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a global, I'm going to go for a global one, if that's okay. I, I, yeah. I touched on it earlier, the detoxing thing. I mean, look, there are a lot of other weird, weird, weird things. You know, the, the egg is a good example. Colonics, I mean, are, are a ridiculous example. Um, you know, who, who could believe that would be a, you know, a healthy thing to do? For, but the whole idea of detoxing, you know, which is largely driven by celebrity uh, wellness gurus, again, incredibly sticky. You, you know, we all pee. That's when you're detoxing. You know, ignore, the, <laughs> ignore that cleansing noise. It is, it is amazing to look at people who have the most perfect genetics and who you know, have, have won the genetic lottery and there's no question about it, sitting there and going, if you do this, you'll look like me. And it's like, no, there is literally, I could go through a million dollars in, in plastic surgery and I'm not going to look like you, let alone, you know, drinking eight cups of water or something like it, it always amazes me that people will think I can look like him or look like her. Nonetheless, um, are most of these fads, we got to run, but are most of these fads that you come across harmful, uh, silly, or can they be harmful? Most of them. Uh- Absolutely, some can be harmful. You know, you have extreme diets. You have have things like uh, colonics, where you can perforate a bowel or just screw up your your microbiome um, in your gut. Um, you know, there are supplements that are pushed that are contaminated and can be harmful. But I, I think you know more broadly, they sort of invite magical thinking. They they invite people to to not see the world through a, a critical lens. And I, so I, I think that that is, on a uh, long term, uh, one of the great harms associated with all this. And we've seen the harm that it can do when you look at the misinformation that has spread and got real traction in the context uh, of COVID. I mean, this, th- this breakdown in critical thinking, I think, long term, is what can do real harm. Uh, See, I think what you should do, if you haven't done this already, I think as an experiment, you should write a book as a lark with the most insane idea of a health suggestion you could come up with. Like just the most ridiculous thing humanly possible and see if people would buy into it. Yeah, it, that's a, it's a great and idea. I might steal that idea. Can I? Can I own that? <laughs> uh, it's all. It's all yours. Just just mention me in a little spot on the back. But I think it would be a fascinating thing to say. You know what? Everybody should uh, should only eat the roots of some tree that are in the Amazon that has been peed on by a flying monkey and blah blah blah. You know, people would buy it. I'm convinced there would be people who would say, "Well, that makes sense." Of course. Well, the other day on Twitter, I suggested that we have a hashtag generator where we have, you know, you pick your vegetable, you know, pick your your orifice (laughs) and pick your ailment, you know, hashtag broccoli nostril anxiety and see if it takes off. (laughs) Uh, I think we should try that. Maybe this afternoon we'll give that a go. Dr. Tim Caulfield, we love having you on every time you can do this. Thanks for the time. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You probably know a lot about Elon Musk by now. Uh, A brilliant guy, an eccentric, unquestionably. And some of that out-of-the-box thinking has led to some really remarkable creations. But there's one thing he's working on that, well, or reportedly working on, that might freak you out a little bit. It's called the Neuralink Brain Chip. Uh Uh-huh. You you can already see where we're going with this. It's a computer chip that would be implanted in your brain to allow 
artificial intelligence to boost your natural brain power, I guess, and your natural abilities. It's um, this seems like one of those things uh, that is going to have fans who just think this is the most phenomenal idea of all time and others who think this is crossing so far into crazy land that there is no way we should be contemplating this kind of thing. I want to bring in Blake Richards, who's an assistant professor in the Montreal Neurological Institute and School of Computer Science at McGill University and a Canadian Artif- a Canada Artificial Intelligence Chair at the Quebec Artificial Intelligence Institute. Uh, professor Richards, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Hi, it's my pleasure. I must say, as we get started here, uh, you may take a different view. This is already sounding a little too sci-fi for me to have a chip implanted in my brain that's going to make me partly artificial intelligence. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it certainly is sci-fi, but the reality is is that what Neuralink has done so far is actually just uh, to improve upon technologies that have already existed in neuroscience labs for decades. Okay. Now that, that said, even with what I said, uh, as I, as I mentioned off the top, I bet there are tons of people who would line up for this, even if it was beyond what you just described, if this really was something that was going to be tapping and, and probably the potential would be there, but I think there would be lots of people saying, sign me up. I'm in. I suspect so. Um, and certainly, you know, we all modify our intelligence as it stands anyways, with digital devices all the time. We simply do so via our hands and our eyes rather than through a direct neural implant. But in principle, there's no big difference in my opinion. Except for the one obvious one, and that is that we have still, if it's in our hand, we have the control to put that device down if we so choose. And if we go out of the house, there's not the possibility if we choose to have have ourselves followed or monitored or whatever else. You can't really do that if it's in your brain. Right. Now, I think the thing that's worth noting, though, is that um, the fact is is that the ability to, say, read someone's thoughts with this sort of technology is still so far into the future that no one need worry about this coming out of Mr. Musk's companies anytime soon. We don't understand many things about the brain. And at the end of the day, what we do know is that there are literally billions of cells in your brain that are responsible for crafting your thoughts and helping you to make decisions at any point in time. And even the most advanced of technologies that we have for doing brain recordings are still only capturing the activity of a small, small fraction of these cells. And we don't really know how to scale this up to the point where, say, someone could read your thoughts. Instead, what we have right now and what they've demonstrated at Neuralink and what, as I noted, has already kind of existed in neuroscience labs for a long time, is that you can record from a small fraction of the cells in the brain And then you, the user, can train yourself to send appropriate signals to that device so that you can, say, control a robotic arm or something like that. The idea that someone would be able to tap into your thoughts and kind of like remotely monitor or control you is still total science fiction and not really anything that's on offer. Sure. And and let's go to the other thing for just a second, because look, as much as I'm not thrilled with a lot of the long-term theoretical potential of this, and that's just my personal opinion. I I can see applications if it was usable where something like this could be, and you just touched on it. If if you have an artificial arm, let's say, or artificial leg, and this could now allow you to use it as a far more normal feeling leg or arm, that would be great. Or if somehow this could be used to 
um, I don't know how, I'm not a scientist, but if this could be used to help people with Alzheimer's, for example, to maintain some memory, like there are clearly things where the idea of this has, has real positive implications. Exactly. And I think that those uh, medical applications in particular will be the very first kind of area where we see this technology adopted with any kind of, uh, you know, regular frequency in our society. The, the other applications that we can imagine, such as, for example, um, having, say, a pilot who has a much more direct control of the plane, or um, in general, maybe if you uh, do a lot of work with computers, a more direct connection with your computer that you can interact with it much more rapidly. Um, I think a lot of those sort of applications will actually probably remain in what we call the non-invasive realm for a long time. And by non-invasive, what we're talking about are technologies that don't actually involve implanting anything under your skull, but instead just read neural activity indirectly from other signals off of your skin and stuff like that. You And again, that's, I think, what a lot of people are thinking, and that's the idea of connecting, being connected in a certain way to your computer or something. Do we want, do you think people want other humans or themselves to be walking computers? Because kind of, if, you, if you've got something implanted, and I know you said that's way down the road, but if there's something in you that connects you to your computer, you kind of are now a walking computer, which is, which is kind of a weird thing. Yes. Although, I mean, <laughs> this is a slightly controversial statement of mine, but the fact is that you're already a walking computer. Um, although it is a very different type of computer from the kind that sits on our desks or which we have in our phones, your brain is ultimately a type of computer. And the reason that these technologies are possible is precisely because what we're talking about is getting two different types of computers to communicate with one another. So really, you know, you're just talking about taking some of the capabilities that already exist in your brain and enhancing them with a the technology. Now, that's not, that's something both that we've done throughout human history, but it's not, it's not to say that we don't have then some additional ethical considerations that have to be considered. Certainly we do. But I think it's one of those funny things where it sounds really maybe scary or new at first, but like I said, it's, it's actually just a standard extension of our intelligence, like we've done for many, many, many hundreds of years in our society. Does it not though, because look, as humans, we're all unique. We all, we all have strengths. We all have weaknesses. Uh, you know, you in your line of work and the way your brain works with the job you do is very different from the way my brain works or the way other people's. And that doesn't mean yours is better or worse. We need people who do the stuff you do and who are great at it. And we need other people who do other things really well. If we start getting into implanting stuff, do we not remove some of that uniqueness and some of that humanity, at least potentially? Yes. And I mean, we're, let's say for a moment that we're talking about very far in the future. So nothing yes, that, yes. you know, Mr. Musk's companies are going to come out with in the next 20 years, but maybe something that might exist a hundred years from now. Then certainly you can imagine technologies where you start to strip away some of the extra layers of individualism and privacy that we have right now. And we've already seen that, though, um, as a result, of course, of having our mobile phones, right? There, there is a, a certain... Unquestionably. ...of existing mobile phone technology into our lives, which would only be increased by having something that has more, uh, let's say, seem a, less, a more seamless connection between our, with our brains. So um, 
I do think these these things would be need, need to be considered. And probably the most important thing, as with your phone, is that you need an off switch. <laughs> yes, just, yes. You just need to be able to turn that that chip off, and and then to some extent, you know, um, it's a matter of asking, you know, how do you make sure that people don't allow themselves to become addicted to that particular way of being that involves being attached to your device. Which again, oh, I think we're past that already. Yeah, I think we're past that already. I mean, the the, the iPhone, the, the smartphone has clearly set the table for that. I, I mean, how many people are, even if the, the purely psychological definition of addiction doesn't necessarily apply, but by our human definition are addicted to our cell phone. I mean, there's millions of people. Certainly, certainly. And so I guess part of what I'd say, though, is that the technology that we're talking about here, you know, having more seamless brain-computer interfaces would, uh, to some extent, just be uh, another kind of step in the same direction that our cell phones have already taken us. And and I would argue that the, the, the far more kind of dangerous question, both with our cell phones and potentially with the brain-computer interfaces, is that question of constant connectedness. Because, look, if you had, say, a brain-computer interface that allowed you to you know, drive your car with total ease, but it wasn't connected to anything else. To some extent, the num- like the concerns that one might have are relatively limited, unless you're talking about like a hacker taking over the system or something like that. But what's really concerning is the idea that this sort of intimate device would constantly be connected to the global information stream that is the internet. And, and it's that sort of like information overload and hyper-connectedness that seems to have weird, pernicious effects on human psychology and society that we'd have to be really careful about. Well, yeah. And I mean, it was not that long ago, just a month or two or whatever that Joe, uh, that uh, Elon Musk was on with Joe Rogan on his podcast. And one of the things he said was that he expects that with this device and others, humans in the future are going to stop communicating in the traditional way. And, and I don't know if he expanded too much on that, but the idea, I guess, being... If you've got this chip, you don't really even have to speak out loud because you can communicate through the chip, I guess, through thinking or whatever. And again, I I realize this is sci-fi and down the road, but you're right. I mean, some of these things, you've got to be very, very careful because here's where, ultimately, here's where this thing to me gets troublesome. Once you Hmm. have opened the door to these things, to these ideas, we rarely go backwards in technology. Once it's been created, we may say, well, I'm not sure that we should use this this way, but somebody will. Somebody will push the boundaries and, and you keep kicking open the door. And even though you and I say, well, it won't be used for that, it might be. It might be. Yes. yes. I, I, I ultimately agree. And I think that's why with these sorts of technologies, it's better for us to be thinking about such ethical implications way, way before the technology has actually been developed. So, you know, as I said, I think in the near term, what we're going to see are some medical applications, and we'll also see various devices that allow us to have uh, an easier time communicating with our computers, but non-invasively. So, for example, um, there was a company called Control Labs that was bought by Facebook uh, recently that has these uh, armbands that allow you to communicate with your computer using nerve signals in your arm. 
And it, it allows for a much faster kind of higher bandwidth communication between you and your computer. But these sorts of devices, you know, none of this are, are concerning in the ways that you're articulating when you think about actual brain implants or like what Mr. Musk was talking about with respect to, you know, the idea of having just communicating via thoughts and almost telepathy or something like that. Those technologies are all way, way down the road. So luckily, we do have the luxury of time for thinking about the ethical structures that would need to be in place. And if we're smart, perhaps we're not, but if we're smart, <laughs> we will have these discussions now with this luxury of time uh, in hand. And then by the time that we actually get to the point in the you know next century where it's actually possible to think about even building such a device and having it work appropriately, we will have really worked out some of the necessary ultimately legal and social structure is required to control such technologies. One thing that's not so far down the road, because these things are being tested now, as I understand it, and they're doing some animal studies. And uh, I guess one of them that they explained was that um, a, a monkey was able to predict the next bounce of a virtual ball. So the, the uh, three-dimensional the coordination and anticipation and everything else, that's already, I guess, a reality. And look, I know that this is just one example, but if that's even where we are now and we were to start offering this service, you're essentially killing sports right off the bat. Because if everybody <laughs> now can be the highest level of coordination and anticipation and everything, then you've reached a point where it's no longer human and, and everybody can do everything perfectly. But here, to, to, to uh, assuage your fears a bit, um, for example, one of the things that happens with these technologies that we still don't know how to solve is that there's, there's a problem that we call representational drift, which means that the ways in which your, your brain represents things changes over time. And moreover, the placement of these electrodes for the kind of device that, that Neuralink you know, showed with these uh, monkeys uh, doing this kind of ping pong game that kind of stuff uh, doesn't last very long. In fact, after about a couple of months, maybe a few months at best, the recordings no longer work appropriately, and you can't mm. actually get the system to, to continue to operate. This is one example of the many limitations that actually exist with such technologies right now. And, you know, for reasons that we all understand, when Neuralink makes their announcement, they just want to kind of splash out the really sexy, like, oh, isn't this cool? Look what we can do. But the reality is that we're still so far away from being at the point where you would ever want to replace your body with these devices because your body is still the best, most intimately hooked up thing to your brain in existence. And none of the technologies on offer come close to that level of permanent, well-working link between your brain and the external world. If we can, though, be imagining and working on brain chips like this one, it seems only logical, though, then that less um, complicated ones would probably be coming very soon down the road for implanting chips for financial stuff or medical stuff or things like that. I, I can't imagine that the, the, the future does not involve that probably pretty soon. Oh, yes. And I think for medical stuff, you will see this very soon because, of course, if you don't have a body that's working, like let's say you've been paralyzed, then anything is better than nothing. So you will take what's on offer. Um, and likewise, you know, there are um, kind of lower level things that we can do that are simpler, such as, for example, regulating organ function 
Like you could have much smarter pacemakers or things that help regulate your digestive system, courtesy of signals that are picked up from nerves that your brain uses to communicate with your organs and stuff like that. So there's all sorts of potential applications, particularly in the medical realm, that I think we will see over the next couple of decades. Um, and they will carry their own ethical implications with them. But none of those ethical implications will include the fear of someone like reading your mind when you don't want them to or anything. No, like no. And I was actually thinking more along the lines of something where, you know, you would scan your hand if you went into a grocery store or, or, you know, whatever else, or the, you go to the doctor's office and they just scan your wrist and it sees the, you know, the, your entire chart come up. Uh, and like, I mean, I can, pardon me. Sorry. Yes. I understand what you're saying now. I think though, probably the first step that we'll see that in is just in our smartphones, right? So Again, the funny thing is we're going to encounter all of these ethical dilemmas in our smartphones before we encounter them in an implanted chip. I mean, already people are using their smartphones for payment systems, and you could imagine having your medical records tied to it. And and that's when we're right off the bat going to have to contend with the question of, well, how do you make sure that these systems are secure, that they are not being tampered with by nefarious actors, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I think that by the time we get to the point where the chips are worth implanting in yourself, um, hopefully we will have resolved some of the questions that come along with this just by virtue of having such a system in, embedded in our smartphones. Yeah. And that raises a whole other one though about, and we won't get into it now, but if once that day comes that even those more basic things happen, uh, do we get to a point where you're required to do that or can still choose not to? And that's a whole other area that governments and everyone else are going to fight about. And that's not our discussion for today. Um, but listen, Blake Richards, assistant professor at the Montreal Neurological Institute, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for this great chat. It's my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I think we'll go with a little Bohemian Rhapsody, gentlemen. Good call. Yes, Wayne and Garth. Do magnificent things to music, don't they? Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson. And the other day after work, I was sitting at my computer and came upon this documentary that it was a bad, bad idea to, it's one of those YouTube things where you click down and you, one thing leads to another and suddenly you stumble on this documentary and it was a bad idea only because it was really long, but I'm telling you, it was amazing. It was about Live Aid. It's called Against All Odds. I think it was made by the BBC and it's a two-part thing and it was three hours long. Best three hours you've spent, I've spent in a long time. Nonetheless, it was three hours late at night. Of course, watching this and it's the story of Live Aid, but Queen is highlighted because that is that, that concert, 1985 Live Aid concert really did amazing things for Queen's reputation. That's considered maybe the greatest concert performance of all time. And naturally, that concert performance began with the song Bohemian Rhapsody. It was a huge hit already by 1985 when Live Aid happened. Um, became even bigger thanks to, again, Wayne's World and other things. Well, now, this is an amazing report. It comes out of England. Queen is now making, the surviving members of Queen, are now making $175,000 a day off royalties for Bohemian Rhapsody and the movie Bohemian Rhapsody, which of course only happens because of the song Bohemian Rhapsody. $175,000 a day from that song. Hmm. I want to bring in Lou Molinaro. He's a member of the Hamilton Music Advisory Team. He's an instructor at the Harris Institute for Music, but you probably know him as the guy who owned This Ain't Hollywood. Lou, thanks for doing this today. 
Nice speaking with you, Scott. Can I just actually interject for a moment and tell you, um, the very first time I met you was in Burlington at the Mainway Arena. Uh, you were covering uh, the Hammer City Roller Girls League debut. Okay. Okay. And yep. I, ac- I accidentally walked into the arena area having a beer in my hand, and you pointed at me and you said, I don't think you're allowed to have beer in here. So I went back. And I've never said thank you for not ratting me out. So after all these years, thanks for not ratting me out on that beer. Well, I I, I didn't realize I, I I don't even remember, but I don't remember, I don't realize I was such a stickler for the rules. But okay, well you know, uh, I didn't rat you out though. And no, no, you did. No, oh, there we go. Uh, Lou, look, we one hundred seventy five thousand dollars a day off the song. A lot of musicians have been suffering during the pandemic. Clearly, Queen has not. No, they're definitely not. Uh, this is a band that has had a, a really strong marketing campaign ever since they went commercial. Uh, they've uh, been very studious in the ways of conquering not only uh, the, a European market, but an international market. And they've been consistent with it as well. So, um, you know, th- th- there's a reason why, uh, you know, Queen's Greatest Hits is the biggest all-time selling uh, UK album. Uh, it's just because that these guys have been very uh, smart uh, studious and uh, they they know how to uh, maintain their fan base. It's just it's part of what is staggering about this though is just the it's hard to imagine for the average person how much money there is out there in the music industry. I mean, this is just a a tiny little sliver of it. But if you're making this much money, I mean, it's it, we can't comprehend it, can we? It's very hard. Like I didn't realize that they were making so much money. Um, you know, had I known a few years ago, we would have asked uh, Brian May to help us with the rentals at the St. Hollywood. Right? <laughs> but, <Good idea>. uh, <laughs> uh, however, um, you know, it, it's kind of an incentive, especially for musicians who feel that this is an industry that has a lot of dead ends. Um, you know, a magic corner that you turn and you're set for the rest of your life. Why do you think you've, you have sat and listened to innumerable bands playing innumerable songs, some of them really good songs, some of them probably really horrible songs. You don't, I'm not putting you on the spot to say who is who, but Mm -hmm. why has Bohemian Rhapsody, which is definitely one of the more unusual rock songs of all time. Why has it stood the test of time and thrived like it has? I think it's just that it's a perfect song that marries a lot of different genres. Uh, You, you, you hit the nail on the head when you said it's unusual. It's a song that, uh, has this operatic uh, part to it. It has this beautiful piano melody similar to like early Elton John music. And at the very end, it has this very thunderous rock um, ending to it that, um, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, fans who love hard rock and metal can certainly relate to it. It's just one of these songs that really seems to capsule all these really subgenres of rock uh, all together. And it's kind of like a medley in a way, but um, it, it, it's become an anthem in so many um in so many movies there's a movie called uh, bohemian rhapsody as you mentioned it's just like a special song that is kind of a once in a lifetime sort of thing with a band even though they've written a lot of other great songs there hasn't been anything that uh, has touched bohemian rhapsody do you think that of this money that they are making i mean do you do you think honestly they should be sending a little you know, a few thousand bucks a day. Thank you to Mike Myers and Dana Carvey though, seriously, because just that, that in that movie there, that was the bridge between the eight 1980s and the current generation. It, it seems like that it needed that little bounce off the trampoline in the middle to keep it going. Cause who knows what happens with that song? If, if Wayne's world doesn't come along. 
So last night, Scott, I was uh, doing a bit of research, hoping to find, because I was thinking of the same thing, and I was hoping to share some information that maybe would have been uh, available through Google, uh, just if there's any, um, if there has been any reports or if uh, Mike Myers and um, uh, what's his name, Dana Carvey, Dana Carvey. Have, uh, yeah, have uh, received any royalties or any money. I imagine, I'm just going to presume that they have because I think these two guys, the whole movie was responsible for uh, reintroducing Bohemian Rhapsody to a different demographic and younger generation of rock fans. Uh, so I, I didn't find anything, but it wouldn't surprise me um, if, uh, if they have it, because one thing that I did learn by just reading a bunch of stuff last evening was that these guys have really been, uh, very giving to a lot of causes and, uh, a lot of institutions supporting music and things like that. So it doesn't seem like they're hoarders of, uh, of the money, <laughs> you know? Well, no. And, and you know, like I, I think of other examples of songs that were amazing songs that were written a while ago, not, not, not ancient but were written a while ago and then there was something that came along that gave them that extra like little turbo boost i mean one of them obviously when um the beatles did twist and shout and then it got in ferris bueller's day off in the parade and suddenly twist and shout becomes number one again or even more recently uh don't stop believing as the last scene of the sopranos that all of a sudden don't stop believing which had been out there but then goes to number one again because it's in a popular venue uh, it's a moment now that a new generation hears it this is the craziest thing about this music industry is is that it's so unpredictable that you leave it up to the person who's responsible for programming music or picking music to include into a movie or a tv series and lo and behold um, it paves the way to you know more money and to fame and sometimes in in regards to getting a band back together who perhaps have uh, broken up years prior so it's a really interesting uh, it's a really interesting kind of concept on how these things work, and it's always so hard to predict. We really don't even know what the next one's going to be, but I imagine there probably is going to be something in the works uh, that is going to be the next uh, twist and shout or don't stop. Oh, believing. sure, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And you're right; it, it's it's a complete mystery, and all of a sudden, some song that we remembered as kids will be back again. And uh, and look, I, I what may, what is even maybe more surprising to me about this is, I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody is a fantastic song, um, but there are other Queen songs that you would think, okay, I, I would have thought that, um, you know, We Are the Champions. I mean, it gets played endlessly or We Will Rock You might have right. been the one that would have been even bringing in more money. Somehow Bohemian Rhapsody, Rhapsody became the one though. I think it has to do with the actual... <clears throat> um, just in regards to how it's been used. I, I think I'm not entirely sure, but I know that royalties, the way they're paid out, if they're used in sporting events or something like that are much different than any sort of royalties that are being paid out for um, television or um, film. Uh, and, and I imagine maybe even theater because uh, we will rock. You was also uh, a theater presentation too, right? Yes. yes. So yep. it's, I think Bohemian Rhapsody again, it's just because it's such an unusual song. It's so unique. Uh, there's nothing else like it. it and, and I don't think there ever will be another song like it. It's just, you know, one of those moments where all, you know, everything aligned perfectly. And um, when it first came out, I, it, it flopped. Like, I, I don't think people really got it until um, more commercial radio stations, FM stations were playing it. And it, it seemed to have more of appeal on uh, DJs that were really kind of... Uh, very committed to their shows and not 
you know, just playing one song off an album, but back then you could play two or three songs off an album. And a lot of people were really digging that night at the opera album. And the other thing was, is the production of it, the way it was uh, actually recorded and, and, and engineered, um, it was very different because it also introduced a lot of different technical things in the studio, courtesy of Roy Thomas Baker, who really is kind of like the unsung hero to this whole thing is because the, the producer really had a lot to do with the actual sound sonically. Right. The George Martin of the, of Queen for sure. Um, you bet a hundred percent. Well said. Yeah. And, and, and when you say that, I don't know that there will ever be another one like this. I, I'm, you know, I don't know if the fact that it's weird and nobody can make another one like this, but just the fact that the industry now that music is so fractured, we don't, we, you know, once upon a time, again, every single person listened to the radio and for your music. And now, you know, no one's listening. Well, I don't want to say that. I mean, lots of people listen to the radio, but not in the same numbers, not, not where everybody has a station because you have your own phone, you have your own device, you have your own streaming. Uh, we don't have the same communal listening experience that we did once upon a time. I, I absolutely agree. And another thing to keep in mind is that the industry pushes you not to have a single that's over five or close to six minutes. You have to be in and sure. out of a song within three minutes. This is the most hilarious part of this. Um, this is going so well for Queen still with Bohemian Rhapsody. There's still so much interest that, that they have decided to do something really old school now and have decided to put out a cassette of their greatest hits featuring Bohemian Rhapsody, which um, it has sold out. And I'm looking at this going, who even owns a cassette player anymore? <laughs> I don't, Isn't that I don't know who's playing this. So when I first learned about it, uh, honestly, I kind of thought, is this one of those Beaverton uh, news stories? You know, where, you know, it's kind of twisted, but it, it, it seems so real. And then I realized that it, 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 you know, it was legit. It was the validity of it was, it came from Alan Cross um, and he was talking about it. But to me, I, I'm a music fan and I love collecting things from my favorite bands. Uh, I think it's very honorable that they still maintain this pageantry about the band and, still offer these really cool little keepsakes uh, like a cassette instead of just being typical and just having it streamed or uh, doing it in another medium. I, I, you know, I, they, they've um, also manufactured a bunch of CDs, but the cassette really, really stands out because um, it's also an introduction to a tangible product that we, you know, brought along with us in our cars you know, we had it in our boombox. It, it was so uh, easy to transport and bring with us that we could put it in our car as we went to Ottawa for a trip and listen to cassettes. Uh -huh. And, you know, nowadays, you know, it, it's kind of lost. So I really respect the band that that, that, that because they did that. I, I thought as goofy as it is, I think it's just really, really charming. And it still maintains that integrity of giving their fans something else to collect and put into the queen shrine. It's almost like being part of the kiss army or Beatlemania. Yeah. And I think you're probably right. If what I am understanding that you're suggesting is a lot of people are going to get this and never even open it. It's just a thing to own because you've already got all the queen music somewhere else. You don't have to crack open the cassette, but it's just a cool thing to have. But at the same time, Lou, what really blew me away because I thought, I wonder if anyone makes cassettes. And I started doing a little looking into this and this is a, a, a fad or a movement that sounds like it's kind of been gurgling under the radar a little bit. Cassettes are making a comeback. Their sales have been doubling every year. Now they're still not anywhere close to where they were, but there are people out there who are cassette aficionados, apparently, which I'm struggling with a little bit, but I guess they're there. 
And it's a lot cheaper for an artist to put out a cassette than it is to put out a vinyl piece as well. So I Well, think not only that, that, not only that, but you also, they break. So you get to people, have people buy them a second time. <laughs> True. Right. Yeah. The magnetics of the tape don't last forever. So you're going back. I initially thought, you know, with all the money that Queen made, uh, did, um, did Roger Taylor and Brian May buy some sort of warehouse and then lo and behold, they open up these boxes <laughs> and have all these blank cassettes. It's like, what do we do with these cassettes? Let's put out the greatest That's hits. Perfect. It's our 40th anniversary of it. Fine idea. I don't know. You know, it's just such a goofy idea. And it really, I don't know. I, I love a lot of goofy things that happen with rock and roll because it, it kind of puts bumps in the road and it always uh, makes things a little bit more uh, mysterious and exciting. I really respected them for doing that. I, I, I love, like, to me, I love collecting things from my favorite bands, and this is just an opportunity. I'm sure they're not doing it for the money, and I'm sure they're doing it for their fans first. No, I, I, when, I, when I think of a cassette tape, two things come to mind. One is making a mixtape. Three things come to mind. The mixtape, the having to use a pencil to wind up the tape that has come out because it's all <laughs> got stuck in your thing. And the third one is that recording songs off the radio that you never got the full song because you always had to have the DJ's voice at the beginning of it or right. your sister walked in while you were recording and interrupted it and her voice is on there and you had to start over again. But there just, there, there wasn't, cassettes just never seemed to have the romance of vinyl or the quality of DVD or the convenience of digital. It just, it was like this outlier thing that was there. Can you imagine if they released this on 8-track tape? That's next. I'm sure that's next. <laughs> Everything else has been re-released. I, I kind of wonder if there's lineups to uh, car stereo places asking for the Pioneer cassette decks back now that the cassette <laughs> is out, right? <laughs> yeah. We're so full yeah, of oh, No kidding. The Pioneer, oh man, if you had a car with a Pioneer cassette deck, you uh, it didn't matter what the rest of the car was worth. That that made it a worthwhile car. I, I just, Lou, I just, when I hear this kind of stuff, I can't, as again, I can't believe that people are interested in this for the quality. So it's either got to be just as a collector's item or maybe just maybe it's because, you know what, the world is a pretty screwy place these days. And maybe a lot of people, a cassette tape reminds them of a simpler time or something. And it's just, it's a, it's a, a warm memory if you're holding that in your hand. It's a beautiful, positive, emotional feeling that takes you back to when you first bought that Queen's Greatest Hits. Um, and I believe that when it first came out, there was more cassettes that were sold than actual albums that were part of the, you know, the, the sales units altogether. But I also feel that it's just a, a really sort of romantic kind of uh, positive thing to uh, throw back to the, the fans that just won't let go of a band as strong as Queen. And they have such an allegiance of fans that, um, you know, they're not going to open up this cassette and play it. They're going to keep it because they know it's a keepsake. And it is also a memento of a soundtrack of their lives, right? And Queen really represents mm. that to many people. It's a good thing they're not going to be playing it because I did a little other digging last night and discovered that almost no company makes cassette players anymore. There are like a handful, mostly in China, of small companies that will make you a cassette player. But if you don't have one and you want to find one to play your Queen cassette, uh, you're out of luck. Or pawn shops. Ah, pawn shops, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know what? There, who knows? They're I can't, I still oh, I have mine. cassette. I, I do. I've still got yeah. a get. Well, what what we used to call back in the day a ghetto blaster. I still have one here in the basement. It hasn't been plugged in or turned on in 
20 years, but you know, what goes around comes around old ties, right? Ties, the size of a tie may go out of fashion, but eventually the width of that tie is going to come back. So hold on to your old ties. Same with this. Clearly, you know, record players are back in the stores. Clearly at some point, a cassette player, I would think is going to come back. I, I, I agree. And then they're probably going to modify it that it's going to make the whole uh, sound experience that much, much more uh, exciting and richer. Well, it doesn't have much choice, does it? <laughs> no, no. Based on cassettes. <laughs> yeah, we learned the first five, right? <laughs> it was. Uh, it, it gave us music. It wasn't necessarily great sounding music, but it gave us music and we could take it with us because uh, yeah. th- that was really hard to do in a car with a record player. Uh, Lou Molinero. Yeah. No, we got to run. But listen, I really, uh, really appreciate the time. Great having you on. Thanks for the chat today. Thank you. And I owe you a beer. Well, anytime we uh, bump into each other at the rink, I will take you up on that. Okay. Uh, Lou Molinero, former owner of This Ain't Hollywood. Thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Stay safe. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. Oh, this is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.